as you can see, there's some questions coming in, so I'm going to let you take over and enjoy. So I'm guessing we do we have about 45 minutes to an hour with you, Paco? Yeah, that works. Perfect. So I'm going to let you loose and enjoy. Okay, great. Thanks, Mike. All right, so everyone, I'm going to be. I have two screens. I'm going to be looking left to read your questions. I'll try to answer them as quickly as possible because they just keep piling up. Uh, good video and audio from Northern Nightmare. Excellent. Uh, quite funny. Asked, do I like the MiG-21? Um, I mean, I, I have no particular opinion of the MiG-21 other than I fought against um, some of the Pakistani MiG-21s when I was on deployment and. Uh, that was fun for me. Uh, I don't think it was fun for the MiG-21 pilot. Uh, it was uh, for the F-14. It was pretty easy to uh, to defeat the MiG-21. The F-5 that I flew in the reserves uh, is a simulator for the MiG-21. For the most part, it's uh, aerodynamically uh, and, and in terms of raw performance, is almost identical to the MiG-21. So um, I love flying that airplane. I would imagine that I would love flying the MiG-21. Uh, let's see. Any main themes or topics today uh, from Krieger, 22 Foxtrot Sierra. Uh, for me, Krieger, my main theme is I would love to talk about my book as much as possible. I, and if anyone's read it and you have any questions about the book specifically, um, I'm happy to discuss that. Uh, clearly, uh, my uh, the, the crossover with, uh, with this audience is that I'm a former fighter pilot and uh, that's the interest here. So obviously, I'm going to talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. Um, but yeah, my, I'm, I'm promoting uh, lines of the sky and uh, discussing any aviation-related uh, questions that you might have. Um, do you like McTwain one again? Uh, only one question: When will we get to read the next Lines of the Sky book? The book was a blast. Hard to believe that you've never written a book before from Christian. Uh, thank you, Christian. Um, I appreciate that. That's a high praise indeed. I've been writing for decades. I, I've always been a writer. Uh, I've just never written a novel before. So I've written a bunch of articles. And if you go to my uh, my webpage, linesofthesky.com, there's all kinds of media that I've written, some really great stuff about the F5, actually, if anybody's interested in reading about what it's like to fly F5s with the Saints in Fallon. Um, and uh, some great articles. There's a great UFO article there as well. But uh, thank you. So the next book, I'm working on it right now. I'm about four chapters into it. I'm hoping to have it done by March, April timeframe uh, and um, a quick edit. And then uh, maybe by the summer, June, July, something like that, it'll be out in your hands. Uh, flying airliner is difficult than flying a fighter jet from quite funny. No, it is not. An airliner is... Um, much easier and much more simple than flying a fighter jet. Uh, fighter jets are uh, a, a thousand times more complicated. Things happen much more quickly. Uh, the the risk exposure, the potential to have uh, you know an accident, um, is far higher uh, flying a fighter plane than it is flying an airliner. An airliner is you know it's safer than crossing the street, uh, which is good. That's the way it should be. Uh, let's see. Uh, KLRGT500KR says, I believe Speed Angels is probably the best aviation documentary. I would love to buy it on Blu-ray DVD. Is there any way I can purchase a hard copy? Um, you can get the DVD, I believe, on Amazon. Depends on what country you're in. Uh, the Blu-ray, I would not recommend buying. Uh, at the time we made the documentary, and again, documentaries are different from feature films in that we're budget restricted. Um, 
And uh, when we made the Blu-ray version of the DVD, it didn't come out as well as we hoped. We had a bunch of different medium that we were wrapping together. We used a 16 millimeter film, eight millimeter film, some uh, little lipstick cameras that were taped. This is pre HD cameras um, and some digital video. So when we edited all of that together and made it one resolution and then tried to upgrade it to uh, Blu-ray, it, it didn't come out well. So I recommend buying the SD DVD. It's a, it should be available on Amazon. Um, if not, it's certainly available on uh, iTunes and um, Amazon Prime Video for free if you're a Prime member. <laughs> Northern Nightmare. Okay, I haven't read it. What is the book about? Uh, the book is uh, it's about a class of Rhino F-18 uh, F students going through, and they have an instructor who is um, – Sort of a hard-boiled, classic, uh, stereotypical, if you if you will, uh, instructor um, who's got a, a little bit of an issue with women, female pilots, uh, and there's two female pilots in the class, so there's some natural tension and clash as they go through their training. But it, it deals with all of their training, uh, learning how to fly the airplane, learning how to you know dogfight, learning how to land on the aircraft carrier, and at the same time, uh, there's a uh, undercurrent of tension in the South China Sea. That there's a Chinese aggression towards their neighbors in the South China Sea. And that tension is building in parallel with uh, the students as they go through their class and succeed and fail at, at those sort of very dramatic moments. And then obviously at the end uh, of the book, the, the uh, dramatic buildup and, and conclusion, uh, the big battle scene is now these students are thrown into the, into the frying pan, uh, out of the frying pan, into the fire uh, as they have to come face to face on deployment. Um, with some Chinese fighter pilots. So um, it's it's really good, I promise. If you don't like it, I'll give you money back. But uh, you can, again, go to lionsofthesky.com. You can read an excerpt of the book. Um, there's all kinds of uh, media about uh, the book and, and people's opinions of it. So uh, give it a shot. If you like fighter planes and you like fighter pilots, then I guarantee you like the book. Uh, Let's see, Northern Nightmare, a follow-up says, I'm curious also how basic is the F-5 and why did you like it so much? Um, great question, actually. Uh, it's very basic. Um, it was, it, some of the models that I flew were just two engines, two wings, uh, you know, in landing gear um, and some real basic instrumentation. Some of the nicer ones we had had uh, real um, unsophisticated pulse Doppler-only radars. Um, once we started getting more sophisticated airplanes, they had chaff flares, they had um, uh, slightly better radars, they had raw gear, which is crucial uh, anytime you're uh, in a fighter plane, whether you're playing the blue, which is the good guys, or the red, the adversaries, uh, you really need to be able to have raw gear to simulate raw tactics. Uh, and raw is radar warning receiver. Um, but it was, um, why I liked it so much was in part because of the simplicity of the aircraft. You could just jump in, hit two buttons, start and go, literally airborne in about five minutes. Um, and also because it was a really fun airplane to fly. It was you know, one of the last airplanes available for, uh, for military pilots to fly that, that has a cable that links the stick to the elevators and ailerons. Uh, you know, it's, it's a manual airplane and when you're flying it, there's nothing there to help you. Uh, there's no computer to make sure that you don't stall or spin. So you, it really takes a lot of uh, proficiency. And when you fly an F-5 well, you are really flying well. Um, so there's a great sense of pride in that. Um, 
Also, the mission that we had uh, flying the F-5 was a fantastic mission. All we did was dogfight, uh, and we simulated the enemy aircraft for uh, the the uh, blue fighters. And, um, you know, that's that's my favorite thing to do in an airplane is go out and dogfight. I absolutely love doing that. So uh, I did it for 10 years. It was the best 10 years of flying I'll ever have in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm positive of that. Uh, and a lot of that was because of the F-5 itself. Um, all right. How much of the Tomcat was a maintenance nightmare uh, from Michael Aitken? Um, that's a great question as well, Michael. Uh, it was a very maintenance intensive aircraft. So, um, you know, everything in, the, in, in terms of maintenance is calculated uh, by man hours. So for every one hour of flight time in the Tomcat, um, it took 60 man hours to support that aircraft. And that's not to say that if, if you flew it, for an hour, it took 60 hours to get it ready for the next flight. It just, in terms of all the maintenance that's done in the, on the airplane, uh, in its lifespan, uh, divide that by the flight time, and you're going to get roughly 60 hours to the to the hour. Um, so it depended a lot on the quality of the maintainers. Uh, and if you had really good maintainers, then it wasn't a maintenance nightmare, uh, at least not for the pilots, because you had great people working on the airplane. If your maintenance department was average or less than average, then it was it was hideous and there was a lot of problems. So, uh, you know, it had to do with part support. If, if you had the parts that the maintainers needed to uh, to fix the airplanes and you had great maintainers, it was awesome. And my last squadron, uh, VF-213, the Black Lions, we flew the A model when I was there. Um, I went on deployment for six months. I never missed a flight, not one flight, which is kind of unheard of in any airplane. Um, and I flew a lot. I mean, I probably flew uh, 180 times in 180 days. So it was a lot of flying going on and um, and the planes worked perfectly. So it really depended on the maintenance department, but it took a lot of time and effort. Hope I answered that question. Uh, from SPQR, I love that by the way. Uh, I grew up in Rome at least until I was 10. So I, I'm, I'm uh, partial to that. Uh, SPQR 77, did you ever do DACT against any of the Euro canards? If so, how did it go? I did not. Um, I did some against the Mirage 2000-5s. Um, and uh, it was interesting. They had a jammer, which uh, which was incredibly sophisticated and uh, gave our, you know, whenever you're uh, going up against uh, another country, you don't use all the modes. You don't reveal all your capabilities. So the, in, the, in the mode that we were using, the AUG-9, that French jammer was very effective. Um, the plane had an amazing first turn, 9Gs, you know, going basically supersonic, uh, huge motor. Um, if you could withstand that first turn uh, and, and get them into actual engaged BFM, where they had to do follow-on BFM, uh, then it became a, it's a cat three fighter, which means that with those, that Delta wing is the more they pull, the more they bleed, even with the big engine. Uh, and if you could get them bleeding, then, then you could uh, win the fight. But their first, first merge, maybe a subsequent merge, really tough. Chuck Meister, has the U.S. always been a generation in front of everyone else's airframes from your career experience? From my career experience, yes. So, um, you know, during uh, World War II, obviously, we uh, showed up late to the game. Uh, technologically speaking, uh, most of the airplanes that we were flying at the beginning of World War II were not as capable as our adversaries. Uh, by the end of World War II, when you're talking about, you know, the F-8s and uh, the P-51s, 
um, we were, you know, the king of the block. Uh, obviously, the Germans had that jet uh, that they weren't really able to deploy in time, but um, the P-51s and the F-8s were just crushing the opposition. There were some factors, other factors in there, like, you know, that the, the pilots left over in the German and Japanese inventories were um, not quite as good as the ones that were at the beginning. Um, but anyway, just in terms of raw technology, yes, we were able to dominate. Um, so I, I began flying in the late 80s. Since the late 80s, nobody has ever come close to uh, the U.S. Uh, capabilities. Um, you know, whenever, whenever another airplane comes out that's similar, you know, within five to seven years, we've got the next generation airplane that's out on the block. Or we improve existing airframes like... Um, like the F-15, which is a remarkable airplane. I mean, it's been around since the mid seventies and it's uh, been upgraded, you know, continuously. And the current uh, F-15 is an incredible airplane. I don't think there's an equal in the world other than obviously the, the fifth generation fighters that we're flying now. So yes, we have always been a generation ahead. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing. You know, you don't want to, war is not a fair fight. You want to go into war with all the advantages that you can, uh, that you can amass. Uh, let's see. R sharp. What do you think about the F-14's versatility after not ever having to be used in the fleet defense role in a shooting war, as it was intended? Um, I, I think that the pivot uh, from air superiority fighter to along the way, it became a fairly decent dogfighter, um, and then to a uh, an outstanding air-to-ground platform uh, is a remarkable thing. Um, I'm not sure that there's a lot of other planes that have ever done that. Maybe the F-4 in, in a sense, because it really was a fighter when it came out, but it ended up being a bomber. But um, the uh, the F-14 at the end of its career was um, a strike fighter in the truest sense. So you know you could load a couple bombs, you could load uh, you know one Phoenix, one Sparrow, and one Winder, and you could go on a mission and clear your own path. Um, of any fighters that popped up and uh, drop uh, using the laser guided uh, bombs, you could drop ordnance in a precision manner and then uh, fight your way home. So uh, it was it was a really amazing uh, technological uh, addition to put that lantern pod on the F-14 and made it an incredibly uh, effective air to ground platform. Uh, let's see. Ishingor one, which European origin fighter aircraft would you love to fly regardless of the generation? Ooh, I don't know if we have enough time for that. Um, I've always been in love with the Spitfire. I don't think I would fit into the Spitfire. I'm uh, six foot three, so just under two meters tall. Um, I think maybe I could, if I, if I sat in a Spitfire, my head would probably stick out of the cockpit. Um, the, uh, the ME 109 was also a pretty awesome airplane. Uh, Again, I don't think I'd fit in that tiny airplanes. Current generation, um, the uh, the Vigan, the the the, uh, the Eurofighter. I would love to fly the Eurofighter. Um, I mean, they're all great. I, I've had some friends that went over and checked out the Eurofighter simulator, and and uh, they were raving about it. So I, I think that'd be really an awesome experience. Uh, from uh, Tammy Marie Purdy, did you enjoy Star Wars Canyon? So there are a lot of Star Wars Canyons. The original uh, is out in Oman, and I never got to fly that. That's what they, they called it. This is long, beautiful canyon uh, in Oman. 
uh, and everybody would just jump into that and fly it uh, as if they were in the movie. Uh, there's a bunch of Star Wars canyons that exist. Um, I I love them all. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of flying uh, low level in in canyons. It's an it's an incredible rush. It's super fun. Uh, and the nice thing is, uh, you know, if you get into a, a situation where you're not going to, you feel like you're not going to make that next turn, you just level your wings and pull up and, and you're out of it. So, um, it was always a, a, a great, a great joy to fly in any of the canyons. And we, in, in Fallon, we had a canyon that we called Jorge Canyon, which was, um, named after one of the VFC 13 pilots, um, who ended up moving to a different squadron. But for whatever reason, it, we called it after him. And it was much shorter than Star Wars Canyon, but it was really fun. And when we kill removed in a mission, so we'd go out, we'd fly uh, air to air against the blue fighters and, you know, they'd call you dead. So when you when you get shot, you kill remove straight down to about 500 feet or less. And then you uh, you wind your way home through whatever valleys and canyons you can to get to reset and go back out. Um, and uh, frequently we would go through this amazing canyon in Fallon. I missed that quite a bit. Uh, let's see. From Krieger 22, Fox Sierra, what current or in development U.S. combat aircraft would you like to fly the most? Um, I'll answer that in two parts. So I, I always wanted to fly the uh, F-16. I think uh, if you slick up an F-16, almost any version of it, you know, and certainly the, the bigger the engine in the mouth, the, the better. Um, but if you slick up an F-16, there's no better BFM platform in the world. Um, it's incredible. Nine uh, G's, you know, the helmet mounted queuing system. There's nothing that can even come close, except for the plane I would love to fly is the Raptor, the F twenty two Raptor. Um, I mean, they would both be really amazing aircraft to to jump into. Uh, the Navy, you know, the Navy is so utilitarian in, in in what they have to do. You know, they they need a big, sturdy, rugged. Uh, aircraft uh, that maybe sometimes we won't get the sexiest airplanes, certainly not since the Tomcat. Um, but, you know, the new F-35, the Navy version, I think would also be an amazing thing. Uh, but that's more of a technology play. Like the uh, the connectivity of that aircraft uh, with the entire battlefield is insane. It's incredible. And that's what makes that airplane so amazing. Um, not so much the uh, the individual performance, which I think is still pretty good, but it's not quite as good as the F-16 and certainly not the F-22. Ah, let's see. Northern Nightmare, Mike says he sees Mike but not Paco. Oh, I'm back. Cancel that. Uh, Sebastian, uh, what is your favorite hidden feature of the A6, i.e. something you think is really cool that most people probably didn't know about or don't know about? Hmm. A6 was pretty simple. Uh, I don't know. You know, one of the cool things was that we could pull up the FLIR. So, you know, the, the forward-looking infrared ball was underneath the chin of the A6, and it was manipulated by the bombardier navigator, the BN. And in a dive, you know, he would use this amazing radar to get us to the target and then into the general target area. And then once we were targeting a very specific thing, like a building or whatever, a bridge, he would use the forward-looking the forward-looking infrared to put the cursors right on what he wanted to target, and you could pull that video up on the on the screen between your legs if you were a pilot. So w when you're in a dive, you know at a certain point the the target gets so low be beneath your nose that you can't actually see the target, so you're just going off the symbology. But if you if you were sophisticated enough, you could 
pull that video up and you could actually follow the video that the navigator was was um, projecting on his screen. So that was kind of a cool little hidden feature. It was hard to do because you still had to fly and get to the right bomb release point. So. Uh, let's see, Krieger F22 uh, Fox Sierra, you mentioned bleeding speed on the Mirage 2000. The Hornets are also known for having impressive nose pointing ca capacity at the cost of heavy speed loss. Did, did you ever dogfight a Hornet? I did. Um, the Hornets don't lose as much speed. They're not, they don't bleed necessarily as much. Um, certainly a slick Hornet. Um, the problem with the Hornet is the, the motors on it are too small. So if you put really nice, if they put awesome big ass motors on a Hornet, um, it would, it would be an incredible airplane. And not that it isn't now, uh, but a slicked up Hornet, uh, is the most nimble thing I've ever seen other than a Raptor. Again, um, it's incredible they, they, with the newest tape releases they have. And again, I'm not a Hornet guy, so I'm just kind of anecdotally quoting their capability, but the newest tape release, uh, that they have on the Hornets, there's no alpha limit, which means that they could basically be falling at, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 feet per minute and still pointing their nose around. Uh, and, you know, with the helmet mounted queuing system, they're able to slew the AIM 9X uh, seeker head and, and, you know, shoot while they're falling out of the sky in a perfectly controlled manner. Uh, it's remarkable. Yeah, and I fought Hornets a bunch. Um, and uh, in, a, in a Tomcat, if you're fighting a Hornet in, a, in an actual BFM engagement and it was a slicked up Hornet, you were in trouble. Um, anytime you start putting tanks and rails on any fighter airplane, it, it, uh, the capabilities diminish pretty rapidly. So I liked fighting against Hornets that had tanks and rails on them. I think it made it a much better fight. Um, and in an F5, if you're fighting a, a C model Hornet with tanks and rails, you could actually do some really good work, especially if it was a new student, a, a rag student, we call them. Uh, let's see. Michael Aiken says, in one big, uh, one big argument to get rid of the Tomcat was that there really isn't a threat at 80, 100 miles away. I'm speaking of distance wise. You think that would be authorized for weapons release? Uh, it depends. So there, there's a lot of different ways, Michael, to determine whether somebody is a friend or foe. Uh, the more clear the conflict is, the easier it is, right? If you're, if it's World War II and you're, you know, Britain and you're fighting Germany, anybody, anything that takes off out of Germany, you can shoot. And if you could see it from 200 miles away, you could shoot it from 200 miles away. Um, so when you're, say, you're doing a, uh, a small surgical strike and you're going up against a country that doesn't know you're coming, so they've got commercial air traffic or they're doing training flights with their military, um, then it becomes much more restrictive and much more difficult. Uh, you can positively identify somebody as a bandit. A bandit is a, a positively identified enemy uh, in a variety of different ways, um, electronic, visual, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, sophisticated ways to determine whether somebody is a friend or foe. Um, so range is good. Um, it, it certainly wasn't the fact that it was uh, it could shoot up a missile 100 miles away uh, that made the Tomcat go away. It was it was the cost of maintenance and the fact that it was just unsurvivable in terms of uh, you know it's there's zero about the Tomcat that was stealthy. It stuck out like a sore thumb. It looked like a you know B-52 on radar. Uh, Northern Nightmare asks, do you think the updated F-15 can still contend for the near future? Is it the F-15X? I can't remember now. Uh, I'm not sure what the latest designator is, and I don't even think it's out yet. Um, 
Yes. So uh, I will say that with a caveat. You're not when you're sending an F-15 up into in, in assuming, say, uh, we're in a big war with either Russia or, or China. Right. That That's where these planes will really come in, into uh, the, the maximum capabilities would really be tested. You would never be sending up an F-15 uh, all by itself. You're sending it up with um with a number of F-35s or F-22s, and then those airplanes act as the quarterback. Uh, they oversee the battlefield, and then the F-15s are coming in as um, missile wagons, if you want to call them that. Uh, it's still an incredible platform in and of itself, but if, if you really want to talk about the highest threat possible scenario, uh, you know, we're going up against the Chinese. They have 7,000 fighters. We have, I don't know, 1,500 fighters. Um, how do we take out so many of their airplanes uh, with the missiles that we have? Um, you need you need stealth aircraft uh, that has that have tremendous situational awareness, and you need aircraft that have missiles uh, that can get into the combat zone and, and shoot off missiles. Um, and the interconnectivity of all these aircraft on the battlefield is crucial. I hope that makes sense. <clears throat> Do I, uh, Christian uh, Grutner, Grutter, I'm sorry, asks, do you think stealth and standoff weapons are making low-level strike flights obsolete? Um, the, the way warfare works, Christian, is is it, you know, you, you develop a capability and then you develop a defense and then, you know, somebody intelligent figures out a way to get past that defense and then you develop another capability and then somebody else develops a defense. So, um it depends. Uh, you know, I, I think that there are places and, and times in the world where given the proper electronics package, you can still come in where, where it would be advisable to come in low. So, you know, flying a low level strike uh, has so many threats involved um, just in flying it. Right. You're flying at high speeds at 100 to 200 feet off the surface of the earth, probably at night, because that's that's our. That's the uh, sanctuary that we enjoy. We are we are a country that owns the night, and because of that, we have a huge advantage of most of our opponents. Um, so you're you're flying high speed, low to the ground at night. That's dangerous. Even if you did that, you know, in peacetime, that is very dangerous. Now you add on that um, that you've got to deliver weapons in combat, and people are looking for you and trying to shoot you. Uh, whether or not that sanctuary is effective makes it a very dangerous play. So, uh, you know, you, you, there must be a significant advantage technologically um, to make a low-level night strike worthwhile. Uh, Av Geek Joe, Paco, can you talk for a bit about field carrier landing practice and its importance, please? Sure, Av Geek. Um, the, uh, the active landing on an aircraft carrier um, is something that is uh, it's so complicated uh, in real time. It's so um, there's so many variables that what you want to do is have the muscle memory involved uh, in the in the process ingrained into your brain, into your stem power, um, to such a degree that uh, you don't have to think about the basics. Like if the ball's low, your 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 brain automatically compensates uh, for that by adding power and maybe a slight little back stick, so that it's instinctual. Uh, and what that's what field carrier landing practices do. They they 
grind the routine part, the mechanical part of landing on an aircraft carrier so deeply ingrained into your uh, into your subconscious that once you get out to the ship, you have that as a baseline and then all these other variables are thrown at you and you can kind of deal with them and not the rote part of flying the airplane. Um, it's also a great place for the LSOs and the pilots to discover any kind of trends that a pilot might have and work on them in a safe area um, and really hone good practices. Um, so when you're a new student flying, you know, in the training command flying T-45s or, or you know, and you're in the RAG flying your Hornet, you really want to have, you know, coming off the, the uh, 180 degree position, you know, you want to have that procedure completely locked into your brain before you get out to the ship and you look out and you see this tiny, tiny little airport, uh, even though it's a huge ship, it's a tiny airport uh, off your left shoulder and, and your brain freaks out. So I hope that answers your question a little bit. Uh, let's see. Alexander Vatter, would the A6 not be a great cast platform in a low threat in an environment like uh, in Afghanistan, like the U.S.? Air Force did with B-52s. It would be, um, but we are not. So the Air Force is much bigger than the Navy in terms of how many airplanes it has. You know, we the Navy has ten aircraft carriers, and we have air wings to support those ten aircraft carriers. Um, so we we don't we can't afford to have a um, a very niche mission specific aircraft that only goes out and does one thing, and then as soon as we you know, conflicts change. They change every generation. You don't, you don't want to be fighting uh, the last conflict. You want to be projecting forward to what the next one might look like. Obviously, you don't know for sure, but what it might look like and be prepared for that. So the A6, sure, it would have been, I mean, anything would have been a great cast platform. You could have used a, you know, a, a B-29 if you want a uh, low, low threat cast. But um, no, it's, it's, not, it's not a survivable airplane in the Navy in today's Navy. Chuck Meister, when you're flying an aircraft, do you have to worry about the maintenance cost? Uh, I imagine it's like driving somebody else's car. Uh, no, so I, there's three regions of flying that I do. I fly, I flew in the military, uh, I fly in the airlines, and I fly um, myself around in, in a plane that I share with some people and a couple planes. Um, the only time I ever really worried about costs or maintenance costs or fuel costs or anything was when I fly my own airplane, when I actually have to write the check. Otherwise, you just, you know, you have a, you have procedures that uh, exist to fly the airplane and those procedures take into consideration cost of use and, you know, proper, proper usage that you don't do damage to the airplane. And as, as long as you're flying within those parameters, then you're doing the best that you can to minimize the cost burden. Um, but no, uh, you, certainly not when you're flying in the military. You don't worry about uh, costs, uh, maintenance costs or anything like that. Uh, let's see. Krieger, 22, Fox here. With regard to stealth, some writers have written a lot about how the advanced Super Tomcat would have been stealthier somehow. <laughs> I can't answer that. I don't know anything about the advanced Super Tomcat. I get the sense that you, like me, Krieger, are a huge fan of the F-14. Um, I love the airplane. Uh, I'm deeply, deeply emotionally attached to it. Uh, it's not, um, let me put it to you this way. The F-14 is like a 1966 Shelby Cobra. It's gorgeous. It's a beautiful car. Um, it's a monster. It's, you know, it's it, for its time, it was technologically superior and advanced, but in today's day, 
you know, almost any car that you get from the rental company could beat that on a track. Maybe not, maybe that's an exaggeration, but you get my sense. So as technology advances, even things that were um, remarkable for their generation uh, become not obsolete, but they, be, they get to the point where they they keeping around anymore because they can't compete with the latest and greatest. Um, killer KLRGT 500, have you flown the F-14 in air shows? Nope, I never did. I, I, not officially, I did a bunch of private air shows, but probably nobody should know about that. Uh, also, what are your thoughts of Dale Snort Sawgrass and how would, how could he make the mighty F-14 dance? <laughs> so I, I, I know Snort, I don't know him really well, but I, I know him. We're, we're friendly. Um, he's probably the single, I'm not even probably, he is the single best F-14 pilot that ever lived. Uh, he dedicated his life to that airplane. I think that's all he ever flew in a 20-some year career in the Navy. Um, and he flew it extremely well. Um, I, you know, he, he did things with the plane that nobody else could do. And he also got away with a bunch of stuff. Like uh, his is, he's got perhaps the most famous F-14 photo, you know, the, where he's flying by the aircraft carrier uh, in a slight climb uh, plan form to the to the deck um, while people on deck are like, oh, uh, that's one of my favorite F-14 pictures. That's Snort. And, uh, you know, it's a, he got away with it. And most people would do something like that and then they'd be kicked out. SPQR77, what did you think of the Tornado IDS as a strike platform? How would you compare it to the A6 Tramp? Um, I don't know a lot about it. Um, I, do, I do know that they, I, well, I think I know. So the, the A6 was 100% manual. When you're flying it at night, low level, you know, the BN worked the radar, and then I would, I would get a computer-generated solution in front of me to, uh, to show me what the train looked like. And then as a pilot, I was flying the airplane manually um, at night, 480 knots at 150, 200 feet, through the mountains, through canyons, over ridges. Uh, uh, so we, we did it all by hand. Uh, the F-111 and I believe the Tornado um, have an autopilot mode where they would get, you know, the, the computer would take over and the pilot would just remove his hands from the stick. Um, I mean, in my mind, that certainly takes something away from uh, your skill as a, as a night strike fighter. But, um, you know, I'm sure it was a, it was capable that it, it, it had a more sophisticated uh, radar. Maybe it was able to target a little bit better. But, you know, for, for our era, we were the king of the king of the hill. Dan Oliveira asks, Navy pilots talk very often about night landings on the boat. Flying the A6, you get enough currency proficiency to be really comfortable on that situation. Any nice sea stories on that? Yes, Dan. Um, so the A6 was my first fleet aircraft. Um, I thought it was super honest and not necessarily easy, but um, really predictable to land on the ship. Um, it had a, a nice uh, wing sweep, about a 45-degree wing sweep, and it had enough drag on the airplane that, you know, and in the engine, the J-52 engines uh, were um, super responsive. So if I pumped the throttle, the engine would immediately spool up and come back down. Uh, so all those things together combined to make it a really predictable, um, user-friendly platform to land on the ship. Um I was, well, on my first deployment, I was the top nugget, which was really cool. I was, of all the new guys, of 15, 20 new guys, I was the number one in terms of landings, um, which was great. 
And uh, when I got to the F-14, I thought, well, I can do this. I, I'm a, I was the top nugget and I was a top 10 ball flyer. So everything's a competition in the landings and uh, you get awards at the end of certain periods. Um, and I was a top 10 ball flyer in the A-6. So I, I felt confident that I could uh, take the F-14, which was another Grumman product, and land it on the ship uh, without you know, learn, having to learn too much more. Well, the, the aerodynamic differences between the F-14 and the engine differences between the TF-30 and the J-52 are significant. Um, the F-14 has way more surface area, including uh, the, the bottom of the fuselage is, provides about a third of the lift. The wings, when they're fully extended in the landing mode, are uh, up to 20, uh, 20 degrees, not 45 like the A-6. Um, so it, it didn't like – it was a little bit like a glider in a sense. Like if you pulled power, um, it, it would kind of float on you. So you had to – push the nose over a little bit, which is a, always a scary thing to do when you're 150 feet uh, coming down to land on a ship. You don't, you don't want to really bump the nose that aggressively. So it was just a, a little bit of a leap of faith. And then the other thing was the engines were super laggy, the uh, TF-30 engines. So you, if you added power, you would kind of bump the throttles. And then a, a moment later, you'd hear the engines go. So there was a, there was a, a significant delay between when you added power and, and when it would uh, actually come into effect. So there was a lot more anticipation. There was a lot more, um, uh, it was, it was much more difficult airplane to fly onto the ship. It, it was humbling for me when I got there. I never cracked the top 10 again. Um, I, I wasn't bad or anything, but I just, I, I didn't excel landing the F-14 like I did landing the, uh, the A-6. Um, Let's see, yellow 13, other than the carrier landings, were there other fundamentals, let's say skills that defined if a student pilot was fit to be sent to the fleet or be reassigned? Mm. Yellow 13, I think I, I'll try to answer that question as well as I can. So by the time you get, there, there are so many points in training uh, where you will you could get washed out. Um, obviously, you, you know, you're not gonna train somebody up all the way to the point where they're a successful F-18 pilot and then send them to the ship. So there's, you know, you go to the ship in the training command and if you can't hack it then, then you're, then you're uh, reassigned. Um, but there's, there's aptitude tests, there's academic tests, there's, you know, field carry landing practices. There's a, there's a number of opportunities for instructors to evaluate a student's um, potential to land on a ship. Um, and so, you know, the, the other stuff is, is uh, we take it for granted, like anything an Air Force pilot can do, we take that for granted, yeah, we're gonna be, we're gonna be great at that. Um, and then we strap on the ability to incredibly precisely land an airplane on an aircraft carrier. Um, so, you know, the other fundamental aspects of being a fighter pilot are, are assumed to be, to be uh, up to par before you ever get to the point where you're gonna be landing on a ship. Uh, let's see, KLRGT500. What were the highest Gs you pulled in the F-14 since it had no real G limiter? It didn't have a limiter, but we, we had a G limit. It was a six and a half G limited airplane by NATOPS. Oh, and I got the NATOPS right here. Just as a prop, just to get ready. Here it is, the F-14A NATOPS basically the user, user's manual. Um, I think I pulled, I don't know, I, I can't remember, uh, probably 
when I was going through the rag, uh, I was doing my 1v1 hop, uh, grad hop against an, a Hornet. We were both slick, so I had no tanks or rails. And I think I pulled somewhere in the neighborhood of 9Gs in that. Uh, got a little bit of trouble, nothing too severe. Um, in the fleet, you know, I knew our planes were going away. So uh, I wasn't too shy about uh, overjigging them. That's just the way it is. Um, and I probably pulled HEs, a, you know, a number of times coming, uh, you know, flying the, F, the F-14. <sighs> Let's see. IWS FOD. Do you still keep in contact with Face Shot and Slick? I heard that they're not in the Navy anymore. I do. They're both really good friends. Uh, neither one's in the Navy anymore. Um, Slick uh, lives up uh, in the Pacific Northwest with her family, husband and three kids, uh, and is working in corporate America. Uh, she's doing great. And Face Shot lives in uh, the Denver area, and he is uh, he's still a pilot. He won the Reno Unlimited Gold, uh, I think, in 2017. Um, Super dramatic race. Look it up on the internet if you want to be just thrilled by a, 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 an air race. Um, and he's obviously still involved in aviation, but that's not uh, his job. He's got a, another, um, he's an entrepreneur, so he's got uh, some other work that he's doing with a, a partner of his that he met in the Navy as well. But yes, I'm, I'm still in contact with him. They're both doing really well. Uh, they're both great guys and gals. Uh, let's see, Christian, love to see the chart on the wall. Is that the SFO area? If so, why that area? Yeah, I live in the Bay Area, Christian. Uh, so that is, it's a 3D uh, chart. Um, we used to have in the Navy, and I always uh, loved that. You know, they were in all the ready rooms. Uh, they were much bigger. They were probably, you know, three meters by two meters. Uh, and you could go over there and look at all the low-level uh, routes or the areas that we flew in. And, and like I said, it's a topographical 3D chart. Um, so I just got this one as well. Uh, of the Bay Area because that's where I live. Uh, let's see. Krieger follows up. I'm a fan of the Tomcat, but I'm deeply aware of its limitations and understand why it went away. So I wonder what drives the endless what-if machine surrounding the ASM proposal other than page use. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't really get involved with the sort of what-ifs, like the, you know, the super advanced F-14 I let it go. I, I like the F-14 that I flew, and um, it's a it's a part of the past, like a P-51 or a Spitfire. It's a great. It was a great airplane for its time. Uh, yes, Northern Nightmare private air shows sound like uh, Top Gun. Yeah, I mean I didn't do them a lot. Uh, if you do them a lot, you get caught, and then you get kicked out. So you just have to be very strategic. Uh, and a follow-up is, I like the Tomcat, but I have to say the Hornet is pretty awesome at air shows. Yeah, of course. They're all great. Uh, the Tomcat was the best, though. The only airplane I've ever seen that can compete with the F-14 at air shows is the Raptor. And that thing is unbelievable. It does things I, I can't believe airplanes can do. <clears throat> uh, Alexander Vatter, Tornado, same, Tornado, same as the F-111. Yeah. That's my sense. I, I don't have much experience with either one of those airplanes uh, other than knowing that they flew on low levels on autopilot. Okay, KLRGT asks, in Speed and Angels, you said you have dreams of dogfighting and doing maneuvers. Do you still have those dreams of ACM? In which fighter do you dream of flying again? I do. Um, and I have a Yak-50 that I do BFM with uh, against some friends uh, fairly often, once or twice a month. Um, I'll, I'll dream of you know, flying in that or dogfighting in that. Uh, but 
the the one that that pops up most often is the F5, um, fighting it, fighting in the F5 against other friends. Um, I did, you know, you know those anxiety dreams. I had an anxiety dream. I was on an aircraft carrier and uh, manning up to for a flight, but it was in a, a Hornet, and I've never flown the Hornet, so I was all kind of stressed out about trying to figure out how to turn the airplane on and where to, you know, lower the the launch bar to get launched off the aircraft carrier, and uh, it, it was very stressful. But somehow, I, I think I managed to get airborne. Uh, and the follow-up was during ACM, how did you mitigate the compressor stall issue with the TF-30 engines how, while you're still trying to win the fight? Um, you know, as long as you were, um, as long as you didn't introduce any side slip uh, at high alpha, you were, in, you were in good shape, certainly not in blower. So, you know, the, the, my favorite maneuver in any airplane I've ever flown is, is called a pirouette where you're uh, going, you know, in a certain direction and you get to not zero airspeed somewhere above zero speed, but slower than, you know, normal maneuvering speed. And then you cross control the airplane and it swaps ends and goes back down the other way. I love doing that for whatever reason. It's just very satisfying to me. Um, the F 14 a, uh, was pretty easy to pirouette, uh, but you had to remember to come out of blower when you were doing it. Otherwise, when you're at really high alpha and you're side slipping the airplane, you would blank out the um, the one of the motors, or if not both of them. Uh, and the TF30, when it, when your blower had such a huge demand for air that it would it would compress your stall. So it was it was pretty easy to do. It was fun to do. It was always unexpected because um, not many people did it. Um, so it was it was kind of a cool maneuver to execute. Um, but as long as you were out of blower, then then it would be fine. Uh, the other time where you were at real danger was if you're like again, you're high AOA and there's a, you know, your, your target is one side or the other, so you're not pulling pure uh, pure lead. Um, you and you wanted to roll while you're engaging them. Uh, again, high AOA rolling maneuver. You're blanking out one of the engines. You could stall, and that's how you would actually get into a flat spin in the F14. That was a, a fairly uh, dangerous regime. So. Um, you know, there's a couple, you, you learn the quirks of every airplane that you fly. Um, and that was the one in the F-14. And, and after a while, it just became second nature not to put yourself in that uh, position. All right, let's see. Zigzag ground zero, Northrop F-20. Oh, I wish, I wish that would have been a spectacular airplane to fly. Uh, should have been built. Any thoughts on this outstanding design? Yeah. So, uh, Northrop, um, you know, the, both the F-5 and the F-20 were built by Northrop on spec, which means they were not asked to design and build the airplane. Um, I think ultimately that was um, a mistake. They built great airplanes, but when somebody's not, when a, you know, when a, when there's not a lot of demand for what you're building, um, you can get stuck with something that's great, but there's no use for, uh, or there's no home for anyway. Uh, and that's what happened with uh, the F-20. Great airplane, but it was competing against the F-16, which which was a better, ultimately a better airplane. Um, and uh, it just didn't have a home. It would have been great for foreign services, but you know, there, there's a, a prejudice against buying um, second rate airplanes, I guess is what you would call it, um, that are not flown by the US military frontline services. So it just, it, it never had a, a true demand. <laughs> yes, Chuck says, if anyone breaks into my house, I can hit them with that book. I can hit them with a book and a bunch of other stuff as well. Uh, Mike says, we have 15 minutes. 
So let's see, 15 more minutes. Have you heard about the F-14 module at Heatpler Simulations from Grizzworld? I have, and actually I've spoken to them. Um, we are, uh, we're talking about, so my, my next book has Iranian F-14s in it, and um, Heatpler apparently does not have uh, the Rhino. So, you know, all my novels right now deal with rhinos because that's what the Navy flies pretty much. Um, so we're, we're trying to figure out a way to have some missions in there that relate to my next book that are F-14 only um, while we wait for the rhino uh, to come out. So we'll see. Uh, Daffy Dude, do you know Brandon Webb? He's a former SEAL and runs News Replies Yaks too. I do know Brandon Webb. I know him really well. In fact, I own my Yak 50 with Brandon uh, Daffy Dude. Um, so uh, I share my Yak 50 with three, or well, two other. There's three of us. Brandon Webb's one of them, uh, and uh, and obviously there's a third partner. Um, and when I was writing uh, for Fighter Sweep, I worked for Brandon. I was the editor of Fighter Sweep for a while, and uh, Brandon was my boss. But uh, we're also close friends. Uh, KL RGT says I heard a pilot who fought against an F-14 say they tried. F-14 to get slow, and once the wings came out, it was difficult to regain energy quickly. Is that correct? What would you do in that scenario? Um, I mean, yes. So there was a there was a zone. If you got the F-14 down to about 250 knots, certainly the A model that I flew that was uh, underpowered, um, it was it was a hole. So if as an F-14 pilot, um, you you wanted to either be at corner speed, which was 307 knots, or you wanted to be slow so that you could really pitch your nose around. Um, and you wanted to be able to, you, you know, you needed altitude and, and no threat, nobody's nose on you to be able to unload and get your knots back. If you could, if you had a, if you had the ability to do all those things, then you could get your knots back. But definitely somewhere around 250 knots, you're in a hole uh, that, you, that you were neither fast enough to corner properly or slow enough to really uh, use the, the nose to your advantage. So, yeah. Sebastian says, what role do you see red air contractors filling in the near future? What capabilities should they have in order to best meet the DOD's needs? Um, the, the short answer, there's a really long answer to that Sebastian, but uh, the short answer is, uh, I think contract adversaries are a really smart thing, uh, because, when I was flying, if you needed a bad guy for a, a mission, you would just go to the board and grab another Tomcat or two Tomcats and a couple more air crew and, and go off into your mission. It was pretty easy. There was a lot. There were a lot of assets, and they were relatively inexpensive to fly. Um, today, the F-35 and the F-22, um, and to a certain degree, the the Rhino, the Super Hornet. There's not nearly as many of them. There's fewer pilots. They're much more expensive to operate. They don't just sit around, you know, like the, I, I, the Air Force will map out a pilot's training program for whatever, six months. And I think they know like every airplane for every flight. I mean, it's that detailed. The Navy's far more uh, flexible than that, um, let's say, but the, you know, the, they know how that airplane is gonna be used. They're so expensive to use um, that you just don't have these assets laying about to go uh, train as your red air. Uh, and then, so you would have to have a dedicated radar squadron of which we have a number. There's, um, you know, VFC 13, which was you know, my last squadron, my reserve squadron, VFC 13 and Fallon flying F5s. 
and there's one in Key West, and and you know there's a few other. There's VFC 12 and, and Oceana, and the Air Force I think has one in Nellis. Um, but you know now you've got dedicated squadrons that you're paying full-time adversary, active duty adversary pilots, uh, and some reserves to go fly. It's a, it's an expensive gambit, um, and it's expensive to upgrade those aircraft, and you know cost the taxpayers money directly. Uh, and then you're you're losing some flexibility. Now if you get a contractor to buy F5s and then put in AISA radar, helmet mounted queuing system, some jammers, uh, some really good raw so that they can do uh, radar warning tactics. Um, now you've got an upgraded capability and somebody else bears the burden of the cost and um, and, the, and, and as a military, you know, you, you have more flexibility, flexibility to not have to deal with that, right? It's much easier. The, the job of the military is to go out and fight war. That's that's what a military is for. Um, so the, the more precise and focused you can be on that mission um, and not have to deal with all the other support aspects, then I think the better off you are. That's a really quick and dirty answer. Uh, let's see. Northern Nightmare says, I always wondered, did supplying the Iranians at 14s lose any tech into the wrong hands? Lose any tech into the wrong hands? I, I'm sure it did, uh, but, you know, it didn't seem to have had any effect long term. So clearly the Iranians got 1979 version F-14s. They didn't get any of the American upgrades, although I believe that they've done a number of their own in the last decade or so. Um, you know, they got the... They got the uh, AIM-54, which is an incredibly sophisticated missile. I'm sure the Russians got an AIM-54, um, you know, even though they, the Iranians and the Russians are not the best of pals. Um, so, yes, there was – but, you know, that's the price of business, right? You, you let your toys into the world, and uh, you have to to get the best for yourself. Uh, you have to defray the cost by spreading it out. Um, and inevitably some of that's going to leak out. So that's why you keep building newer and better stuff. Uh, Chuck asks, comments, wow, I always thought the F-14s and F-15s were overpowered or powered enough. Chuck, let me tell you something, man. There is never, ever, ever enough horsepower or thrust. Never. If there's only one thing I could have added to any plane I ever flew, it was more power. And that goes with cars as well. Uh, Sim Sedlow, did you uh, use ACLS most of the time, some of the time, or rarely? I never once in 20 years used ACLS. It was always manual for me. Um, you know, we had the we had the uh, ILS version, uh, the Navy's version of ILS to to guide us to the landing area, but I've never never did hands off. Uh, the Hornet guys do it, I guess, but I never again. I never flew the Hornet. Krieger 22 Foxier, early F-15s were so powerful that the engines had reliability issues because pilots adjusted the throttle far more than anticipated. I don't have any data on that. That doesn't make, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, maybe the engines were, you know, in, in the early 70s, they weren't used to being jockeyed around. Or, or, but today's engines, listen, you can, you, can take a, you can take an engine and go from full blower to idle, uh, and the engine doesn't really care. So that's the way it should be. Um, Christian, just a big thank you. Oh, hey, Christian, thank you. Thanks for being here. Uh, Krieger asked, did you ever get to fire an M54 in training? I flew, I shot a bunch of them, Krieger. I think I shot five, which is an enormous amount. Um, 
of uh, side, uh, I'm sorry, Phoenix missiles. I shot one Sidewinder, which was a pretty cool event, and I shot five AIM-54s, not at the same time. There were three different missions. Um, so yeah, I, I had some great, uh, great missile shots. SPQR, what would be your favorite fun to fly general aviation aerobatic aircraft? Well, um, I mean, for GA aerobatic aircraft, I love the Yak-50 that I have, that I share, um, specifically because it's a great dogfighting airplane. So we'll, we'll, every once in a while, somebody in an extra or, or an edge will come and, and dogfight with us. And even though it's a much more modern airplane and looks sleek and, uh, you know, doesn't leak oil like a Yak-50, um, we'll, we'll tear them apart because it's just not designed for dogfighting. So... I love flying that airplane. It's super fun. It's it's really fun flying a radial engine and uh, having a tailwheel, and it's a great experience. Key, let's see. I'm sorry. G. Cardi says, "Let's assume you're fighting for your life. F-14 or F-5? Oh, well, F-14 for sure. If I was fighting for my life, uh, F-14 because it's got more toys. Uh, you know, the latest F-14s had the helmet-mounted queuing system, uh, great radars." Um, you know that's that's the plane to fly. And again, when you're fighting a war, you're you're you don't want to fight have a fair fight. So I'd be uh, shooting my A54 as far out as I could. Zigzag Paco, are you working uh, with DC at FlySim? If so, tell them to make F20. <laughs> uh, I'm working with uh, with Heepler. I think they're uh, they're using DCS. I, this is all new to me, so forgive me if I'm if I'm saying something that makes no sense. But uh, I'm working with. Uh, Heapler to do mods and missions for the F-14. Um, and we haven't actually started yet. We just sort of had the initial discussion, so it's going to be a little bit. Uh, Northern, Northern Nightmare. Yeah, thanks for this one. It's been a good one. Well, thanks to you, Northern Nightmare.